with advances in the assisted reproductive technology field, gay men can and do have their own biological children. Becoming a parent via surrogacy is never an easy path, but it's one that more and more gay men are taking to become parents. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome to today's episode of Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. On today's episode, we're going to explore everything you need to know about surrogacy for gay parents. Let's start with the basics, the obvious. What is surrogacy and how does it work? The formal definition of surrogacy is a method in which a woman agrees to carry a pregnancy for someone else who will be the child's parent or parents after birth. It's used when the intended parents are unable to carry a child on their own. Sometimes for straight couples, surrogacy is used for medical reasons like infertility. It's also an attractive option for single individuals and members of the LGBTQ community who want to have a genetically related baby. Over the past decade or so, surrogacy has become an increasingly popular pathway to parenthood for gay parents. Celebrities like Sir Elton John, journalist Anderson Cooper, and actor Neil Patrick Harris and their partners all had children via surrogacy. Their willingness to share their journeys publicly has gone a long way toward helping get the word out about how surrogacy can make parenthood available to gay men. Surrogacy has also helped single men like Perez Hilton become fathers to biological children. Despite popular belief, surrogacy isn't just for the rich and famous. Yes, surrogacy can be costly, but there are definitely ways to make it happen. I've seen people from all walks of life move mountains to make their dreams become a reality. Let me touch on some terminology before we go any farther. First, let's define traditional versus gestational surrogacy. Until the 1980s, the only way to have a child via surrogacy was through what's called traditional surrogacy. With traditional surrogacy, the surrogate is inseminated with the sperm of the intended father and her own egg is used. Obviously, in this case, the child would be genetically related to the surrogate. Obviously, in this case, the child would be genetically related to the surrogate. And as you can imagine, this has the potential to create all sorts of legal and emotional complications. There are still states where traditional surrogacy is permitted, however, and some gay men do choose to go this route. The other type of surrogacy I mentioned is gestational surrogacy, and it's far more common. With gestational surrogacy, IVF is used to create an embryo that's then transferred to the surrogate. In the reproductive technology industry, the term gestational carrier, GC, or simply carrier, is the technical term, but for the laypeople, surrogate is just fine. With this form of surrogacy, the carrier is not genetically related to the child. In most cases, agencies in the U.S. will only work with gestational surrogacy arrangements, avoiding the potential complication of traditional surrogacies. The other terms you'll want to know are compensated versus compassionate or altruistic surrogacy. A compensated surrogacy means that you'll pay your surrogate a compensation for her time and efforts in carrying a child for you, in addition to covering all related expenses. Compassionate or altruistic surrogacy is when your surrogate agrees to carry for you without any payment above a reimbursement for expenses incurred due to the pregnancy. Compensated journeys are quite common in the United States. 
Compassionate journeys often take place when you have a friend or family member who is willing and able to carry for you. Now, before we dive into the specifics of how a surrogacy journey works from start to finish, let's lay out the most basic facts about baby making. Yes, this might sound a bit like the old birds and the bees cliche, but with a lot more facts and precise language than your parents or middle school health teacher may have used back in the days. If you're an expert in all things human reproduction, feel free to skip forward a few minutes. Otherwise, stick around. In my experience, the American education system does a pretty poor job educating people on sexual reproduction, and chances are, if you're a gay man listening to this, you may have zoned out during all the discussions about female anatomy back in the days. Consider this your crash course. You'll thank me when you have that first meeting with the fertility clinic staff. So, how are babies made? Well, you need gametes, or sexual reproductive cells, from a male and a female in order to make a baby, obviously, right? Yes. Once a month, about midway through a woman's menstrual cycle, her eggs travel to her fallopian tubes during ovulation. In the quote-unquote traditional way to go about it, during intercourse, the male partner ejaculates sperm, then travels through the woman's cervical canal, uterus, and into her fallopian tubes. If the timing and conditions are right, the sperm will fertilize one of the woman's eggs. Once fertilized, the joined gametes hang out in the fallopian tube for three to four days, its cells rapidly dividing. At this stage, the cells are called a blastocyst, which is the very earliest stage of a human embryo. Remember that term, as it will come up again when we start talking about IVF in a bit. The blastocyst then travels to the uterus, where, if all goes well, it implants into the lining of the uterus. The cells continue to divide, forming an amniotic sac and placenta, and the foundation starts being laid for important parts like nerves, brain, heart, and so on. The embryo continues to develop until week 11 when it's now officially a fetus. So as a gay man, you likely have half of the equation when it comes to reproductive cells, the sperm. In order to have a biological child, you'll need to decide how you'll obtain the female gametes needed to create an embryo. One of the most common ways to go about this today is by selecting an egg donor and a gestational surrogate. It's possible in some states to have a child via traditional surrogacy, in which case the surrogate's own eggs are used, but this gets complicated to say the least. Proceed with caution and with a lot of solid legal representation if you're going to pursue this route. Okay, assuming you'll need to find donor eggs, where do you begin? The good news is you won't have to go it alone. There are hundreds of fertility clinics and assisted reproductive professionals across the U.S. vying to help you have a biological child. In fact, gay men are among the most coveted customers in the fertility industry. Compared to even a decade ago, the agencies and resources available to you have increased exponentially. While there's no shortage of clinics and professionals who are eager to help you, you have a lot of very personal decisions to make. If you're having a baby with a partner, whose sperm will be used? How will you choose the donor eggs to complete the female side of the reproductive equation? We'll tackle the question of whose sperm to use in a bit. For now, where do you find the eggs and how do you choose? Many people find an anonymous egg donor through an agency or frozen egg bank. Others work with a known donor, like a close friend or perhaps one of your partner's female family members. Each method has its own pros and cons, including cost, level of anonymity between you and the donor, and waiting time. There's no right or wrong decision to make here, but I think it's important to have as much information as possible before deciding which route to take. First, let's talk about one of the more common methods of finding an egg donor, using a frozen egg bank. 
This option can be one of the most cost-effective ways to find an anonymous donor, and it often gives you the widest range of selection in choosing a donor. Egg banks pre-screen all of their donors, and each has its own set of qualifications they look for. Donors have to pass medical and psychological background checks and disclose medical information, including any medications, surgeries, illnesses, and more, either personally or in their immediate family. Genetic screening is also quite standard. Typically, you'll be able to search the egg donor's online database, checking out donor profiles. It's not all that different from a dating website, actually. You'll read about each donor's demographics, physical traits, interests, academic achievements, and more. Most of the time, donor profiles will also include baby photos of the donor, so you can start to picture what your baby may look like. Egg donation agencies are another option. These agencies act as a go-between with you, your clinic, and potential donor. Agencies can help with your harder-to-find donor requests, like donors of certain ethnicities or religions, and they can take care of the legal side of things for you as well. These cost a little bit more, but for some intended parents, the concierge treatment is worth it. It's also possible to find an anonymous donor on your own. Going the DIY route can potentially save you money, but keep in mind that you'll be doing all of the legwork on your own. And whoever you choose will still have to pass the medical and psychological screenings as required by your clinic. The most common way to coordinate a DIY egg donor match is through personal connection. However, some people can find success sharing their story via social media or searching through independent matching websites. For many gay couples, finding a known donor can be a fantastic way to save on the already costly journey to biological parenthood. Sit down with your partner and discuss who, if anyone, you may want to approach about becoming your egg donor. You may have a female friend you're close with who you'd love to ask, or if you already know whose sperm you'll be using, you could approach a sister or a cousin in the other partner's family. In that scenario, you could have a familial link from both partners. Keep in mind, though, that while you can likely save on the cost of using an agency or frozen egg bank, you'll still foot the bill for all of the screening and medical costs involved with egg retrieval. Plus, if your BFF agrees to donate her eggs for you, you'll probably owe her a very nice bottle of something at the very least. It's worth noting that asking someone to donate her eggs is a lot more labor-intensive than a lot of favors you might ask. If you choose to approach someone you are personally connected with, be prepared to offer her resources and education about the process. You don't want her to blindly agree out of love for you. While that is admirable and indicative of a close, loving relationship, she needs to be aware of what egg donation entails. You'll need to do your own homework in coordination with your fertility clinic. But here's a brief overview. A woman must meet certain criteria to qualify as an egg donor. Most generally, she should be between the ages of 21 and 29 and able to pass extensive medical and psychological screenings. She'll have to give an extensive family medical history, personal health history, including potentially intrusive questions about her current and past sexual activities. Once she passes the initial screening, she'll undergo a complete physical examination, including a transvaginal ultrasound. And if the clinic agrees that she's a good candidate, she'll begin a pretty intensive regimen of at-home hormone injections to stimulate her ovaries. The actual retrieval procedure takes place in the clinic as an outpatient procedure. It usually takes 20 to 30 minutes. Most women report feeling cramps and discomfort for a day or two, which is usually treated with over-the-counter pain medications. 
As with any medical procedure, there are risks involved, which you should research and discuss with your potential donor before agreeing to move forward. One particular risk is to look into is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. For even more information on egg donation, check out our episode four, Egg Donation 101. Okay, none of this is said to scare you away from asking a friend or loved one to be your donor. Rather, I want you to proceed with the full understanding of the process, the risks, and the potential physical and emotional toll this can take on all of you. It's a big ask, and it's one to put a lot of thought, research, and consideration into. It's also important to prepare yourself for no to be her final answer. I think having the full picture of the process can help you be accepting and graceful with however your loved one responds. No matter which route you choose to take, you should always consult with an attorney who specializes in reproductive law for the LGBTQ community and a qualified mental health professional that you trust. Keep your legal house in order while also attending to the emotional side of this complex process and you can rarely go wrong. Okay, I know that was a lot. The next question to tackle is, whose sperm will we use? The decision of whose sperm to use can be highly emotionally charged depending on how each person feels about being biologically related to their child. For some men, it's not much of an issue. For others, it's a make or break kind of decision. So how do you go about choosing which partner sperm to use? A few questions to consider. Does one of you feel more strongly about the issue? Is there any extenuating circumstance that might make one partner or a more obvious choice than the other? Adverse family health history or being a carrier for a genetic disorder are two instances where this may be the case. You can speak with your fertility clinic about early genetic testing to rule out possible issues. First, I highly recommend starting an open and honest dialogue with one another. Each partner should be allowed to express his feelings, fears, opinions, and concerns without facing judgment or negativity from the other. Many couples benefit from regular counseling sessions with a mental health professional, which I highly recommend. You'll also want to involve your fertility doctor in the decision-making process. While you will have the final say, your doctor may have a clear reason to use one partner's sperm over another. They can test for things like sperm mobility and motility, for example. What about the question of traits? Does one of you have a particular exceptional ability, like musical talent or athletic ability? Do you hope your child will be on the taller side of average? Are you particularly enamored with the idea of a curly-haired little one? Of course, as with all things genetics, no guarantee that Mother Nature won't throw a curveball. But you can certainly take factors like this into account. Some men choose to roll the dice, so to speak, and let fate decide. One way to do this is to half of the donor's eggs fertilize with one intended father's sperm, the others with the second intended father's sperm. At that point, the fertility clinic can examine the resulting embryos to see if some are more viable than others. If all things seem equal, you could try implanting one of each, keeping in mind that if both take, you're having twins. Of course, your surrogate needs to be on board with this possibility. No matter which way you choose to go, please take the time to have an open and honest line of communication between you and your partner, and don't hesitate to involve the expertise of a counselor or therapist. And remember, this is a very personal decision, so while it's good to seek advice from your peers and others in your circle, ultimately the decision is up to you and your partner. 
Once you have found your donor eggs and settled on whose sperm will be used, the process becomes identical to the IVF process for straight couples and single women. So let's talk about how IVF works. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. It's a process in which eggs and sperm are joined together in a lab to create a blastocyst. The blastocyst that develops is then transferred to the uterus where it will hopefully implant. Now, in your case as a gay man, you'll need to work in conjunction with the woman who agrees to be your surrogate. We'll talk all about how to find the special woman in a bit. After several weeks of medication to prepare her body, your surrogate will arrive at the IVF clinic for the embryo transfer. The doctor will carefully place a long, thin catheter into your surrogate's vagina, through her cervix, and into her uterus. The embryo, or embryos, are then injected into the catheter via a syringe, traveling through the tube into the uterus. Hopefully, after a few days, the embryo will implant, signaling the beginning of a successful pregnancy. All right, enough biology for now, I promise. What can you expect your surrogacy journey to look like? How long will it take? What will it cost? And how the heck do you find a woman to be your carrier? Well, the first thing to know is that this is not a fast process. In general, an entire surrogacy journey can take up to 18 months or sometimes longer. If you need to seek an egg and or sperm donor, you can expect an additional three to four months. Yes, it takes a while. But if it's where your heart is, it will be well worth the wait. I like to talk to my intended parents about surrogacy in terms of three phases. The preparation phase, the legal and medical screening phase, and finally, the embryo transfer and pregnancy phase. First up, preparation. Aside from genetic decisions, which we've talked about in detail, many intended parents choose to consult with the surrogacy agency that will walk them through the process. Alternatively, some explore the independent route, which means handling all the details on your own with the help of a team of professionals that you vet and hire independently. Each path is great. I'm personally an advocate for both, as I know that every person and every journey is unique. I've owned my own agency for over 13 years now, but I've also created a course that walks you through the independent journey. There are pros and cons to each, which you can research, but be sure to keep your goals, expectations, personality, and budget in mind. If you're unsure what's best, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find links to both my agency, Family Inceptions, and my course, Surrogacy Roadmap, in the show notes. If you choose to work with an agency, be sure to do your homework, checking credentials and reputation thoroughly. As you're meeting with different agencies, pay special attention to how transparent and open they are with you. And always trust your gut. That's true with any professional you decide to work with. But an agency plays such a central role in your journey that you want to be extra sure it's a good fit. Once you've made the tough decision about genetics and you've settled on an agency-led or an independent journey, it's time to dive into the next stage. During the second stage, legal and medical screening, you'll be selecting and screening your gestational carrier ironing out all the legal and medical details, and making all necessary financial arrangements. Your carrier will be screened extensively for medical, psychological, and past pregnancy issues. You'll also work with an attorney to draft a gestational surrogacy agreement that establishes your relationship to the carrier, your rights as a parent, and the details of compensation for your surrogate, if any. As you begin thinking about the type of person who will be your best fit surrogate, 
You'll of course want to seek out someone who is accepting of the LGBT community. Your agency will take care to only send you candidates who are happy to work with gay parents. If you're conducting the search independently, just be aware that you may come across some surrogates who only want to work with straight couples. If you come across a woman with this preference, simply move along. Trust me, there are many, many women out there who specifically want to become a surrogate as a way to support the LGBTQ community. When getting to know a potential surrogate, you'll want to get a feel for how accepting her partner, family, and social circle will be. You want to make sure her immediate family is supportive and that she won't get a lot of pushback from working with an LGBTQ family. Another consideration is your candidate's location. If she is located in a very conservative town and the only delivery hospital within 30 miles of her is a private Catholic hospital, then it's worth considering the impact on your journey. Certainly, it's sad to think about such barriers, but worth being aware of. Again, if you are working with an agency, finding all of this out is central to making sure you and your surrogate are a good match. So what does make a good match? And what does the matching process look like? Well, let's talk about it. If you choose to work with an agency, they will work closely with you to find your best match. Many agencies will pre-screen candidates prior to matching. This is one thing to be sure and ask about as you are selecting an agency. How do they go about vetting and screening their candidates before they match you? A good agency will spend time getting to know you and your family building goals and preferences before presenting you with the profile of a potential surrogate. If she piques your interest, they'll arrange a phone or a video meeting so you get to know each other. If you're moving forward without an agency, you have some options for conducting an independent search. The most common uh, through online communities or by finding a compassionate surrogate within your personal circle of family and friends. The online world has made it easier for intended parents and surrogate mothers to connect with one another. You can place classified ads or join surrogacy networking groups on social media to find a potential match. Please note that you still need to be cautious. Even if you are using a trusted website or community, you don't want to give out too much information since you'll be doing the screening and vetting yourself. Unlike when you're using an agency, you don't have the assurance that the person on the other end is really ready to be a surrogate or is doing it for the right reasons. Another way is to find a compassionate surrogate. This is usually a friend or family member that is willing to help you build your family. Compassionate surrogacy can be a desirable option for intended parents that are overwhelmed with the prospect of finding and getting to know a complete stranger. It can also save you quite a bit of money. Women who choose to be surrogates are incredibly special people, and not many will meet all of the qualifications. If you're searching for a surrogate on your own, or if a family member or friend has volunteered, You'll need to keep certain criteria in mind. It's also worth noting that your fertility clinic will have the final say. Your cousin may seem like a perfect match to you, but if the clinic disqualifies her, you'll have to keep looking. So who makes a good surrogate? In general, you need someone who is trustworthy, stable, open-minded, and healthy. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine recommends that a surrogate must meet the following criteria. She should be a non-smoker between the ages of 21 and 45. She needs to have had at least one full-term pregnancy and delivery. She should be financially independent and living in a stable family situation. Her spouse or partner, if she has one, must be on board. She needs to have no major medical concerns and have a healthy BMI. 
Finally, she'll need to be able to pass an extensive medical and psychological screening in order to gain clearance from your fertility clinic. Beyond the black and white qualifications I mentioned, it's important to realize this person will be a huge part of your life through pregnancy and beyond. You should feel confident enough in your ability to weather stressful situations together, have raw, honest conversations, and set healthy boundaries prior to entering into any sort of agreement. You need to be sure your values, expectations, and intentions align. If this all sounds like a tall order, that's because it is. The women who will ultimately step up and carry a child for you is extremely special. And if you're conducting the search on your own, it may take some time to find that right person. The wait is worth it, I promise. The last thing you want is to rush ahead without paying mind to any red flags or potentially worrisome gut feelings. Now, once you've found someone who seems to be the perfect fit, you'll need to start the process of obtaining medical clearance. Your candidate will work closely with your fertility clinic to be screened and evaluated. The clinic's job is to make sure that she's in good health and likely to have a successful, healthy pregnancy. She'll also undergo a mental health evaluation as well as her partner and a series of background checks. If everything looks good, you're ready to move forward. Almost as important as your surrogate herself is your attorney. If you work with an agency, they will help you find a qualified legal expert. Some agencies like mine have an in-house legal team that will work with you every step of the way. If not, you'll need to start your search early on. This part is absolutely non-negotiable. You need to work with an attorney who is an ally and has experience with LGBTQ family law. The vast majority of family law attorneys are eager to work with the LGBTQ community. But it's worth making certain that you find one who has not only your best interests at heart, but LGBTQ experience to back it up. Unfortunately, there are still some states with laws that make surrogacy and legal parenthood a messy process for LGBTQ individuals. So it's crucial that your attorney is well-versed in all the details. Your attorney will work with you to draft your surrogacy agreement. This legally binding document is extremely detailed, covering everything from the compensation your surrogate will receive to your understanding of and agreement about issues of termination and selective reduction. I can't emphasize enough how important this document is. It's basically the end-all, be-all of your surrogacy journey. Do not cut corners with this. Skimping on legal protection puts you, your surrogate, and your future child at risk for a whole lot of mess when an inevitable bump in the road appears. The attorney's other extremely important role is to help you establish legal parentage. Depending on the state where your baby will be born, this can be a relatively straightforward and routine legal matter, or it can be pretty complicated. Because the U.S. has no federal regulation for surrogacy, state laws vary widely. Most states rely on the courts to enforce surrogacy contracts and issue orders of parentage. That means that decisions can vary county by county even, with one court interpreting law differently than another. A bit of legal background. According to the Uniform Parentage Act, the woman who gives birth to a baby is assumed to be the mother of the child. If she is married, her husband is presumed to be the father, and that's reflected on the birth certificate. This makes sense in most situations, just not in the case of gestational surrogacy. In 2017, the act was updated, 
to reflect gender-neutral language and to account for children born to same-sex parents and those born via assisted reproduction, such as IVF and surrogacy. While this is a great step forward, adoption of these updates isn't mandatory, so individual states can decide if they will follow the new guidelines or not. The more conservative states have failed to adopt the updated Uniform Parentage Act, which means you have a few more legal hurdles to clear if your child will be born in one of those states. Your attorney is going to be a very important resource for you as you navigate the issue of how and when you can be named your child's legal parent. It basically comes down to this. Will the court issue a pre-birth order naming you the legal parent while the surrogate is pregnant? Or will you need a post-birth order after the baby is born? In states that aren't very friendly towards same-sex parents, you may encounter the most complicated scenario, which is when the court requires intended parents to go through a legal adoption process. Let's talk about each of these possible scenarios. Having a baby in a jurisdiction that regularly issues pre-birth orders is ideal. In that case, your lawyer will create an order of parentage sometime between month four and month seven of the pregnancy. Everyone signs it, the attorney presents it in court, and you're good to go. With pre-birth orders, you and your partners, if applicable, name will go on the birth certificate as the legal parents. And the surrogate will have no legal obligation or claim to the child. You're also sure to have access and decision-making rights at the hospital. As of this recording, states that regularly grant pre-birth orders without legal complications include California, Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Nevada, Rhode Island, Vermont, Washington State, and Washington, D.C., just to name a few. In some states, you won't have the option to create a parentage order until after the baby is born. Don't worry, though. As long as you are working with an experienced surrogacy attorney, you'll be just fine. So the process for a post-birth order typically looks like this. When the child is born, the surrogate and potentially her spouse will likely be named on the birth certificate. You should still have the right to make medical, personal, and financial decisions at the hospital but there will be a bit more red tape after the birth. A well-executed gestational surrogacy agreement drafted by a competent family law attorney should guarantee these rights. After the child is born, your attorney will petition the court to name you as the legal parents. They will also require that the surrogate's name be removed from the birth certificate and replaced with yours. These orders typically go through without complication especially when there has been a solid gestational surrogacy agreement in place and all parties agree about the outcome. Again, I can't stress enough the importance of having an experienced attorney to guide you through the legal maze. States and even counties have different laws, regulations, and procedures, making it extremely difficult to navigate without an experienced professional to guide you. Unfortunately, some states and courts in the U.S. make it difficult for LGBTQ individuals and couples to establish legal parentage. In these instances, you may have to go through an adoption process to be named the legal parent of your child. Depending on your marital status, this can go a couple of different ways. If you're married and one of you is the biological father, the other non-genetically related partner can complete a step-parent adoption. If you're unmarried, a second parent adoption may be possible, although since the Supreme Court ruling has legalized same-sex marriages, this is less common. At the end of the day, your attorney is going to play a pivotal role in helping you cross all your T's and dot all your I's so you can focus on the important job of caring for your baby when he or she is born. 
After you receive medical and legal clearance to proceed, it's time to have a baby. Up until this point, it's probably felt a whole lot like hurry up and wait, and there's still some of that to come. First, there's the waiting that comes before the embryo transfer. Your clinic will work with your surrogate to determine her cycle schedule, and she'll take medications to prepare her uterus for transfer. After the transfer, you have about a two-week wait to see if the transfer was successful. Your clinic will let you know when she should have her first beta test, which is a blood test to detect levels of hormone HCG. If the levels indicate pregnancy, she'll take a second test a couple of days later. Doubling numbers are an excellent sign that you have the beginnings of a pregnancy. Following a confirmed blood test, your surrogate will begin a regular prenatal care, including ultrasounds, to check for a heartbeat. The next nine months will fly by as you wait for your baby to arrive. During this time, you and your surrogate will maintain close communication, and you can start the fun tasks like decorating your nursery and stocking up on baby clothes. Before you know it, you'll be blurry-eyed from all those newborn wake-ups but in so in love with your baby. Surrogacy is such a wonderful way for gay men to become parents, and I am thrilled at how accessible it has become in recent years. We still have a long way to go in the certain parts of the country, but I'm hopeful that same-sex parents will continue tearing down barriers in pursuit of equal rights. For more information on how to become a parent via surrogacy, check out our show notes. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its new Instagram and Facebook channel under Family Inceptions. If you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.